this week is crammed with all kinds of really great stuff, courtesy of a book called The Source of Miracles, Seven Steps to Transforming Your Life Through the Lord's Prayer by Kathleen McGowan. She bases these seven transformative steps on the rose with six petals at the center of the labyrinth in Chartres, France. Each petal corresponds to a specific part of the Lord's Prayer, line by line, which she says if we practice with the full awareness of what each really means, and that's the key, if we practice with the full awareness of what each really means, it can create miracles for us, for those we love, and for our entire collective world. And the six petals from left to right, it's faith, surrender, service, abundance, forgiveness, and overcoming obstacles. And we have looked at and worked through all of those. That seventh step, it lies in the center of the rose, and that is love. As love is at the center of our being, it is also at the center of all good. Love is the foundation for divine law, and it flows through God's every action. But what, what is love exactly? That's a question that humanity has forever sought to fully explain. The Gnostic Gospel of Philip states, love does not say, this is mine, but rather, this is yours. And that is certainly both true and poetically beautiful, but what does it mean? Like, really mean? Early Gnostic Christians believed that love was expressed and encompassed in six forms. The first is agape love. This is spiritual love. It's the way that God loves us. It's filled with joy, and it's always completely unconditional. It is the purest form of spiritual expression, and this is called the highest love. The second is philia. Think of Philadelphia. That is the city of? Brotherly love, that is philia. This is the love of siblings and true companions. That is not to imply a lack of depth. Now, I know when I see my two youngest sons interact, the brotherly love they express seems antagonistic. Is that, should we go there? Yeah, it's antagonistic. Um, Philia is not even remotely similar to Connor and Luke's version. Um, McGowan cites this from the Gospel of Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have obeyed the truth and have purified your souls to love your brothers sincerely, you must love one another intensely and with a pure heart. Next is charis. Charis is one of the goddesses um, of charm and beauty and love in Greek mythology. The word means both grace and kindness in the original Greek. So charis describes nurturing service that comes directly from the heart. And the fourth is eunoia. This is Greek for beautiful thinking, and I love that. And I love how she describes it on page 177. She says, this is love in action. Eunoia describes activism, service from the stimulated mind and inspired heart. And the fifth is storge. This is affection in Greek. This is a pure love of tenderness. It's the love of family, children, and animals. And last, 
Last is eros. We all know this one. It is romantic love. It puts the ooh in the ooh-la-la. It puts the bop in the bop, shoo-bop, shoo-bop, and the ram in the ram-a-lama ding-dong, right? I had to. I'm sorry. I had to. The distraction hit, and I ran. Now, 10 days from now, <laughs> I don't have ADHD at all, none. 10 days at all, um, from now, people all over the world will be demonstrating arrows on Valentine's Day. And about all these forms of love, Kathleen McGowan says on page 178, there is no darkness that cannot be defeated by the light of love in one of these expressions. When all are present in harmony, evil cannot exist at all. And remember what we said about evil last week. Remember its definition from that medieval prayer process at Chartres. That which keeps you from accomplishing your mission and fulfilling your divine promise is defined as evil. Think about that for a minute. And I love this quote from Wayne Dyer. I had forgotten all about it. Um, I actually rediscovered when I hauled out a big crate of choir music that probably had to have been sitting there, well, since we moved. So, almost a decade. Um, and I brought it in, and I handed it to Miss Mona over there, and she started foraging, and found a crumpled up, ripped out piece of notebook paper on which I'd written it. And I don't know how I forgot it, because it's really big. He says, fear knocked at the door, love answered, and no one was there. Isn't that beautiful? I love it. Or as Ernest Holmes explains it on page 405 of The Science of Mind, love alone can overcome fear because love surrenders itself to the object of its adoration. Equally beautiful, right? And Kathleen McGowan says on page 179 of The Course in Mir uh, Source of Miracles, wow, I'm getting them all blended in together. The Source of Miracles, she says, one of the most simple yet stunning and significant teachers, teachings I encountered in my study of the medieval Chartres principles came from this lesson about love. There is no problem for which the instruction to love more is not the solution. That's big. And I have a challenge for you inspired by Kathleen McGowan's exercises in this chapter. I'd like you to choose one day this week, preferably one in which you know you're going to encounter a wide variety of people. And from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, commit to choosing to love more in every situation which confronts you. At the end of the day, stop and think about every encounter and ask yourself if you approached each with love. Could you have done more? Did you fall short sometimes, or were you able to love more for the whole day? And I encourage you to keep repeating this exercise over and over and over until you get to where loving more is no longer a choice. It's instead an effortless movement within your life because I know with absolute certainty that if you strive toward this goal, Joy, the joy and fulfillment you're going to experience in life will be profoundly amplified beyond what you could imagine.
McGowan says on page 180, Charis, the love that is graceful and kind, is the love we feel when we make the determination to love more in our day-to-day lives. And she shares this parable with us, this allegorical tale. She says, a young man who loved fishing read a glowing article with vivid pictures about a sparkling lake where enormous rainbow trout leapt from the water. The ad indicated that the fish were so abundant they practically caught themselves. And excited by the prospect of such an experience, he packed up his fishing and camping gear and he headed out to the lake. Arriving, he quickly set up a tent on the lake shore, then spent the next several days repeatedly casting his line into the lake. But there wasn't so much as a hint of a nibble. There were no magical rainbow trout leaping or otherwise. And he became frustrated. But he told himself that if he just waited long enough, the fish would begin to pour in. After all, he read about it in a shiny magazine full of pretty pictures, so it had to be true, right? Unbeknownst to the young fisherman, the guardian of the lake was a wise old grandmother who'd been watching him the entire time After witnessing his frustration for three days, the wise one came down from her little ramshackle house on the hill and addressed the young man. My son, I've allowed you three days to figure this out on your own, but it's time somebody told you there are no fish in that lake. The young man was taken aback momentarily, but settled into amusement and said, of course there are fish in the lake. I read it in a glossy magazine, and so it must be true. I just haven't found my lucky streak. The elder shook her head and repeated, I have lived here all my life. There is not now, nor has there ever been a single fish in that lake. The young fisherman chose to dismiss the woman as a crazy old lady and return to his task with renewed determination. And I know this next line will be as irksome for some of you as it was to me. Besides, she was a woman. And what do women know about fishing? Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, that made my eye twitch a little bit when I read it, but I left it in as an example of his ignorance. Shaking her head sadly, the old one retreated to her little house on the hill. She'd seen this situation play out time and time again, and no doubt she would continue to see it many times over for the rest of her life. And so she continued to watch from afar. Occasionally, that young man continually casting his line thought that from the corner of his eye he saw one of the lures bob on the surface of the water, a bite. There were fish in the lake, and he'd look over to discover that the water was still as a mirror. And after a full week of casting the lines and becoming increasingly despondent over the lack of fish, he surrendered. Maybe the old woman was right. Maybe he should have listened to her, but he hadn't. Besides spending a week of his life stubbornly chasing a figment of that magazine's imagination, he had also come down with an awful cold, 
pierced his fingers repeatedly with the hooks and sat in poison oak, which he proceeded to scratch, and which had therefore spread to everywhere he could reach. He was not a happy young fellow. So he packed up his things, um, injured in both body and pride, he decided to go home. And as he began to head up the hill, he saw two enthusiastic young people setting up their fishing poles nearby on the lake shore. And he'd learned the hard way, so he thought he'd spare them that experience. He went to talk to them. He said, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but before you waste your time and end up itchy and sick and bleeding, um, I should tell you there are no fish in this lake. And these young arrivals, they laughed out loud. Of course there were fish in the lake. They'd read about it in a shiny magazine. <laughs> so it must be true. I'm telling you the truth. I've been here 24 hours a day for a full week, and I haven't seen the evidence of a single fish. Then, pointing up to the little house on the hill, he said, see up there? An old woman who's lived here her entire life told me that there have never been any fish in this lake. The newcomers rolled their eyes. They knew this man had to be crazy or was a really bad fisherman. The first fisherman, wiser now, he decided to go up and visit the woman on the hill, and she welcomed him warmly. I'm sorry I didn't believe you, he said. You can say I told you so and gloat a little. It's well earned. The old woman shook her head. No, my son. Your pain brings me no joy. I told you there were no fish in the lake, not for myself, but for you. I hoped to save you from the pain I've watched others experience over and over again, and I didn't expect you to listen. People rarely do. The fisherman thought about this for a moment before asking, why do you think that is? The elder, now sorting through a first aid kit, began treating his wounds as she patiently explained, because more often than not, you can't save a person from experiencing their necessary lessons. It's also true that younger egos choose not to recognize older wisdom often anymore. And so while I'll always take pity on people who come here to fish and tell them that there are no fish in the lake, it is entirely up to them to decide whether or not to believe me. More often than not, it seems they think I'm just a crazy old woman living in a shack on the hill, but I still pray for all of them just as I prayed for you. I pray that their lessons won't be too harsh or too painful. It is the one thing I can do to help them. The two of them moved to the window at the front of the shack and watched the latest arrivals cast their lines and wait. So you're going to tell them, he asked. The old woman nodded. Of course I will. I always do. It's kind of my unofficial job. It's why I live here on the lake. If I can prevent even one of them from wasting time and feeling pain, then I've done my job. And if I can't, I have to respect their need to experience the lesson. 
then it becomes my job to show them love through kindness if they visit me. So the newcomers were left to their exercise in futility. It was a lesson they would have to learn through the long and tedious process of casting and recasting their lines, and for some, it is the only way to learn. But one truth would remain as each fisher came and went. There were no fish in that lake. McGowan tells us on page 184, the old woman acted out of love each and every time someone would come and try to fish. She didn't have to work hard or donate money to be of service. She simply had to do the right thing with the right motive. Her motive through love was to help them by attempting to save them from pain. When they didn't listen to her warnings, she responded with forgiveness and yet another act of service. She prayed for them. She felt no glee or satisfaction when the fishing aficionados ended up as she knew they would. With rashes on their legs and wounds on their fingers, she simply carried out the task of healing them. Ultimately, she showed love in several ways. Love for and through God, agape. Love for her human brethren, philia. Love of service, eunoia, and love infused with kindish charity, charis. But the tale imparts another important teaching, and that is you cannot save another person from their spiritual lesson. No matter how much you may want to or how hard you try, you have to impart your wisdom, sure. And if they choose not to listen and they end up falling down, do you then say, told you so, and then chastise them? Somebody down there is going, uh-huh, yep. All you can really do in these situations is provide gentle guidance and allow people to make their own choices. Does it serve either of you to gloat if they choose to learn the hard way? Or is it better for you to wait with love and help them stand again when they fall? That choice is yours. And when it comes to expressing, giving, and receiving all the forms of love we're talking about, know this. All love begins with yourself. Love attracts love. Act from your highest place. Strive to love more in everything you do. Show your love in spirit in your acts of prayer and treatment. And as a natural result, your abundance will overflow. But to truly let love begin with you, you must love yourself. Remember that biblical commandment with which we were trusted. Love your neighbor as yourself. You must first love yourself. You are precious. God put you here for a wonderful reason, and it is vitally important to the world that you discover that reason and let your divinity shine. And I want to end today with a story Kathleen McGowan shares at the end of her book, one which you'll find as relatable as I did. She says, I was recently physically confronted in the Southern California streets by a particularly virulent man. Preaching his political and social agenda, he used hate speech, racist and violent rhetoric, 
all the while emphasizing that he was a Christian. And I noticed that he wore a bracelet embroidered with the letters WWJD. What would Jesus do? Had I thought, even for a moment, that I could have had a legitimate conversation with the man about this idea, I would have questioned him, what would Jesus do? Yet I know that he would have had an answer that worked for him. One that supported his personal and political agenda, and that he would manage to weave it around my idea of Jesus. It would be his Jesus, because I realized then that my Jesus, my loving and compassionate master teacher, and the version of Jesus worshipped by the hate inciting man on the corner are not the same being. What his Jesus would do and what my Jesus would do were two very different things. There are millions of people who invoke Jesus every day. But are we all referring to the same Jesus? Does my Jesus look like their Jesus? Does he look like your Jesus Does he need to? And that leads us to one more important question. Who gets to define what the real Jesus looks like or what he would do? There's only one answer, God. God is the only judge of hearts and minds. The rest of us, we need to love each other and respect the differences we hold in peace. The fact that we are all individualized expressions of God, no matter how others choose to frame it or label it or through what dogmatic practices they observe it. It should unite us, not divide us. Close your eyes for a moment and listen to what I'm about to tell you as though spirit is speaking into your heart directly. You are perfect and beautiful exactly as you are. You always, always have been and always will be. You are worthy of all the love, joy, peace, and abundance you dream of. In fact, You're worthy of far more than you've dared to dream. You are everything you were made to be, and you carry your light into the world in a way that only you can. No one else shines the way that you do. You've hidden your perfection from yourself for far too long. It's time to allow it to be. It's time to see yourself as a living extension of the divine, a living expression of God. You know that God is good. God is perfect. And in knowing that, you must also accept as truth the knowledge that as God is, so are you. Let that settle in as I share with you the final words of Jesus as they are found in the Gnostic Gospel of Judas. He said, look, you've been told everything. 
Lift up your eyes and look at the cloud and the light within it and the stars surrounding it. The star that leads the way is your star. I pray that you follow your star and generate the miracles that will lead you and all of us on the path of creating heaven on earth. Our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. As in heaven, so upon earth. Give us today our sufficient bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.